Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Living with Power Hope podcast. My name is Lena Ebujamra, and I'm your host. I am so glad you're here. You guys know by now that every couple of weeks we spend time talking with a friend about hope. I like to call myself the doctor of hope, but really what we found is that the people that I speak with are the ones who are experts in hope, how we hang out to hope in difficult seasons. I think you guys are going to love today's conversation. We're in the middle of the holiday season, so we are going to talk about sharing the hope of Christ to our gay relatives during the holidays. I know, I know, odds are you're kind of scratching your head going, the truth is I have a gay friend or relative that I'll be connecting with this holiday season, and and the odds are that you bring a certain amount of baggage to the table in this conversation. You know, you might be listening and you haven't thought about the holidays from your gay friend's perspective. So today, uh, I really believe that the friend who I've invited to the show uh, not just knows exactly what it feels like to deal with the holidays as a gay man, but also uh, will show us how we can shed the light and the hope of Christ in um, a conversation that I think can be difficult, especially if you uh, come from a Christian background. So you might be familiar with the name Christopher Yuan. His story really is short of incredible. I think I read his book in 30 minutes when it came out. It was just one of those riveting stories um, that you just can't put down. He is actually a teacher at Moody Bible Institute, a place that is near and dear to my heart. He's been there for over 10 years. He speaks tons and writes about God and about faith. Um, his book that I mentioned is called Out of, a, Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God. And you guys got to read this, but his newest book, which will be given away later on today, is called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. And I tell you guys, that is a book that I can't wait to get my hands on. It just came out, so uh, we will be reading it together, I know. So Chris, so welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me on, Lena. So we are both in the Chicagoland area, and yet you and I have never met for a meal yet. Yeah, not yet. I know that has to. We need to get out the get that on our calendars. You know, because neither of us really has anything to do with our time, so it's, it's really easy to schedule lunches and such. <laughs> so you know, we share something in common. You have a background in the uh, healthcare field. Tell me, tell us a little about who you are, just your background, and and a little bit of your story. Yeah, well, I was raised uh, in in healthcare in dentistry. My father was a dentist. He came to the U.S. Actually, he started out uh, with a Ph.D. in physical chemistry, and then got involved. He started teaching at Loyola Dental School and decided to get become a dentist. So he has two doctorates. So I call him a paradox. He, uh, you know, was while his time being a dentist, I was. Uh, pretty young. I was uh, nine years old when he started dental school. And so when he got out, I was a teenager. And during my teenage years, I had a secret I kept hidden. And it was, wasn't was in my early 20s when I started dental school. I was going to Louis- University of Louisville School of Dentistry. And it was there that I finally came out of the closet and I broke the news to my parents. And my parents, they weren't Christian. They didn't raise me with Christian values. So, you know, that's... It, without that, I didn't have any foundation, came out to my parents. Amazingly, my parents actually, my mother came to faith. And with a few months, my father did as well. Well, me being kind of your, you know, typical agnostic, essentially atheist kid, I thought my parents had lost their minds and I wanted nothing to do with their newfound Christian Christian faith. Well, I went back to Louisville, did what I knew how to do best. And that was just have fun. I was in, in my early twenties and I was 
partying with my friends. I um, began living openly as a gay man in the gay community. I was actually, unfortunately, started doing drugs. And this is all while I was in dental school. It's crazy. Yeah. I, and, and the funny thing is, you know, as, as a med student, as a dental student, you're pretty poor. So I had decided, well, I'm going to support my habit by selling drugs again, all while being a dental student. Wow. And, uh, you know, and I was selling to my friends, to my classmates even, and even a professor. Well, it wasn't until my senior year after I passed national uh, part one boards and part two boards that I was ex- actually expelled from dental school. They, they didn't know that I was selling drugs or doing drugs, but they knew that I, I, I wasn't serious with school. Uh, I wasn't showing up for clinic. I had left patients you know, that, that were waiting for me. So I, I was just really bad. I, I was very irresponsible. They expelled me. I moved to Atlanta. And there in Atlanta, I kept doing what I knew how to do best, and that was sell drugs. Well, I didn't just sell drugs. I became a supplier. And this whole time, my parents, they had no clue <laughs> that I was doing drugs. or they, did, they had no idea that I was doing drugs or selling drugs. But, you know, they, they knew my biggest need. And, and, you know, they knew my biggest sin wasn't same-sex relationships either. They knew my biggest need above everything else was to know and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So they prayed for that miracle. My mother fasted every Monday for seven years. She God, she once fasted one day. She felt God was telling her just to fast, not giving her any any time frame to end. And she fasted 39 days for me. Wow. So I was going the opposite direction. And eventually that answer to prayer came with a bang on my door. It was the Atlanta police and DEA agents and two big German Shepherd dogs. That's so I found crazy. Myself- I know. I found myself in jail. And, um, you know, there God radically began to work in me. Not, I mean, in, in just ways that you wouldn't expect. For example, I found a Bible in the trash can. I mean, not only is it miraculous that you'd find a Bible and it wasn't hidden. It wasn't all smooth. It was like right on top, brand new Gideon's New Testament. But to, but the, to me, the, the other miracle was the fact that I actually picked it up. Right. And I think right. that really speaks to the fact that you know, we got to live the gospel before we preach the gospel. And I saw that in my parents' lives, even though I didn't want anything to do with them, even though I actually really thought that they were crazy, but I saw that they were changed. I saw that they weren't judgmental. I saw that they they, they, they were living their, a Christian life, but, but that was offensive to me. So I began reading the Bible and the, God's word is what transforms us. God's word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. So they... You know, they really began to, uh, you know, it was God's word that uh, convicted me that my identity needed to be in Jesus Christ alone, not in my sexuality, not in anything else. So I don't identify as gay. I don't identify as ex-gay. I don't even identify as heterosexual for that matter. Mm -hmm. But I realized that as a child of God, that my identity need to be in Jesus Christ alone. So during this time, I God totally radically transformed my understanding of sexuality and more importantly of who I was. I felt called to full-time vocational ministry. I uh, applied to the only Bible college I had ever heard of, which is Moody Bible. How long were you in, in, in prison? Well, you know, I was, I was sentenced originally. I was supposed to get 10 years to life. I got six years, but my sentence was shortened, which is really unheard of in the federal system. I, it was shortened to three years. So I did, 
my sentence was three years, but in the federal system, you do 85% of your time plus 15% good time. So I uh, ended up doing uh, two years and about nine months. And um, yeah, I got out of prison. I was accepted to Moody. I applied to Moody while in prison. I was accepted. And uh, I always tell people my my uh, references were a prison guard, a prison chaplain, and another another prison inmate. So miraculous. I mean, kind of crazy, right? I mean, that's that's a miracle in of itself. Like that, you're applying to. One would think, I don't know what one would think, but the whole thing is just almost surreal. Like you're watching a movie yes. of your life. Yeah, I, I talked to people at Moody after the fact. Uh, you know, after years of after graduating from Moody, and I knew the people well, and. They just told me that when they got my application, they're like, they didn't know what to do with it. You know, like they, they felt this, you know, God was doing something in this person's life, but they knew that, well, I don't know. I mean, this, you just don't know. I mean, you, you only time can tell the, whether someone really has put their faith in Christ or not. And uh, they took a chance and I'm really grateful that Moody did. So you went to Moody and graduated and like when, you know, when did it, when did you realize like you were going to be in ministry, you know, all of this life that you have now and started speaking about your experience, did that just happen naturally or did the Lord sort of speak to you about what he, you know, did you have a sense of what the calling was that God has on your life? Yeah, I definitely knew that I had a call to ministry, but what that looked like, what that vocation looked like, I didn't know. All I knew was that I needed more training. So while, during my time at Moody, I, I I didn't feel that God was calling me to uh, the local church uh, ministry to be a pastor or assistant pastor or whatever. And as important, as hugely as important as that is, I felt like God wanted to use my past. And oh, another thing that I didn't share in my testimony was in my deepest, darkest moment in prison, I, I received the news that I was HIV positive. Hmm. So I felt like that through the brokenness, God is definitely going to use that. He doesn't waste that. So I figured Maybe God was going to call me to either prison ministry or HIV AIDS ministry or possibly ministering on this issue of sexuality. But I thought that that can't be because that's too hard. So well, and to, to put people who are listening to some context, I mean, this was a few years ago. This was in 2018. What year was that about when all this was going down? Uh, this was, I was, I got out of prison in 2001. I graduated from Moody in 2005. I went to Wheaton for my master's in exegesis in 2007. So 2001 to 2005, were, uh, 2001 to 2007 was really formative years for me. I, I would say, even though I became a Christian in prison, sometime there in prison, I don't know the exact day or even month, but sometime in there, I would say my, my first few years of being being a, a real, I guess, a real Christian. <laughs> I mean, a Christian normal <laughs> life outside of prison uh, was in 2001 at Moody, and it was just some of my most the most amazing years. Um, and, and, and but to say, I guess, why I wanted to bring that. I mean, the HIV diagnosis back then was like we thought it was right. fatal, yeah, right? Yes. I mean, you, yes. did you think you'd be as healthy as you are now back then? Oh. No. So this was in 98, right when they were coming up with some really new antiretrovirals. But there was still the question. I mean, of course, you know, clinical labs, you know, longitudinal studies are not truly longitudinal studies, but at least you can have a, have a guess. So they, they were coming up with better ones, but the ones previous were so toxic on your kidney and livers that almost that in itself was, was killing people. 
So people were holding off for a little while, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, I, you know, I found out, I got the news that I was HIV positive in 98 or, or the end of 98, the beginning of 99. I was probably infected in 96. And um, you're right. I mean, during that time, things definitely were, were getting better. They weren't like uh, the early 90s or the late 80s, uh, where it was definitely a death sentence. Uh, but when I got in 98, I, I still felt like I got a death sentence. And, and that's how God uses things. You know, he, he uses what we see as just harm and waste. And, and he uses it to bring us closer to himself or or. He uses it as often as a wake-up call. Whether we respond or not is is is, is on us. But uh, so I, and so, yeah. Well, what, well, you were the first person. I remember I was at Harvest Bible Chapel when you came to speak there, and I had I don't remember if I read the book before I heard you, or that was my first exposure to your story. And I remember distinctly feeling like finally someone is talking about this topic because in the church, because it felt like no one really knew how to handle. A discussion on sexuality in that context. And here you were going, here's what God has done in my life and sort of addressing issues that were hard to address. And now, of course, that was about eight years ago, seven years ago. I don't remember how long ago, but a lot has happened in the church and sort of want to move the conversation to sort of where we're going, which is ministering to the gay community at Christmas and providing hope and, you know, for people who might go through a difficult time. But how, you can talk, let's talk a little about this interaction of church and the gay community and sort of how things have evolved in the last few years. Yeah. You know, I, I think what, you know, if we look at the paradigm that we as Christians have had um, maybe a decade or more before. And so if I look at the time when I was not a Christian and I was a gay man, and, and of course I'm only going off by perceptions and little upon actual personal personal interactions because I didn't really have many personal interactions with Christians, but I definitely had a perception and, and I can look back now and I can see that there's it's very likely that I had incorrect perceptions. However, I, I don't want to deny the fact that um, there weren't people uh, that I that would say they're Christian and were acting in a very hateful, non gospel centered way, in which we would actually, and, and you know, we say the phrase "love the sinner, hate the sin," and uh, I, I'd much rather say that we love all people because they're created in God's image, and because we want to share Christ to them, that so that they would know and uh, know surrender to Christ. So it's um, what I saw in the past was this animosity or perceived this animosity from Christians toward gays. And I also saw where it was this misunderstanding that heterosexuality as a whole was good. And, and that's, I need to be careful to say that. So it's it's not, I'm not saying that Sex, uh, sex between a man and a woman or marriage uh, as defined by God and as defined by the Bible between a man and a woman is is not good. It certainly is. But we also need to recognize that heterosexuality, a secular man-made category, is not equivalent to biblical marriage. And what we have conflated is this broader concept of heterosexuality with marriage, and I think, and I think we're we're growing and in, in understanding that a bit more. But I think there's more that we need to understand, and and so we've kind of have this 
animus toward the gay community and, and treated them like they're so different or there's something so much more wrong with people who have same-sex attractions than people who do not. And the reality is, if we read God's word clearly, certainly the same-sex relationships are sinful, but I would argue that it is not worse than any other form of sexual sin, including uh, sex before marriage, including adultery. And as Jesus says in Matthew 5, that if a man looks lustfully after a woman, he's committed adultery. And so as Jesus was raising the bar there, we realized that actually we're all broken when it comes in regards to our sexuality. So that makes the playing field level. And we realize that our gay friend, uh, their brokenness, their sin is not that much different from our own, but by the grace of God go I. And I think when we realize that, that should help us to have more compassion for others and uh, realize that they're not any much more distorted. You know, like people say, you know, well, that's abnormal. And I would say, well, it certainly felt normal to me. And I would almost argue that it's actually quite abnormal to to die to, to die to ourselves, to put to death our sin nature every day. That's quite abnormal, and and um, we need the Holy Spirit to enable us because we can't do it on our own. That's what I mean by abnormal. Like we can't do it on our own. We need God's strength to do it. Uh, what might be normal is giving into our sin, giving into our flesh. Um, so anyway, I, I think and a, a great example of this are, is my parents. Are my parents? They what was so foundational to them turning, uh, kind of having this better understanding of how to reach me is first and foremost recognizing that they are sinners. In my first book, Out of a Far Country, uh, one of the first chapters, because they're alternating chapters, as, as you know, Lena, you know, my mother wrote one chapter one yeah. and I wrote chapter two. She wrote, chapter, she wrote all the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters. And I don't remember, was chapter, I think it's chapter three, uh, where she comes to know the Lord in a very radical way. And she realized she was a sinner. And, and it's funny because she, and she tells it, she, she felt like she wanted to go through the streets and like tell everyone I'm a sinner. And, and you know, that sounds so, so strange for maybe many of the listeners who were born Christian or, you know, born in a Christian home. And that's very common for them. But my mother who, is a perfectionist. She's she wants to do everything well. Um, realized that you know what? It's okay to say I'm not perfect. And it was really freeing for her to realize that. And when she did that, that sin is not only you know the most heinous of sins, whether murder or whether rape or whatever it might be, but it is also jealousy and pride. And and that was so eye-opening for my mother that it wasn't a, a like really bad news for her to hear that she was a, a sinner. It actually was very freeing for her. And it was after that, that when she realized that if God can love her in spite of her sins, a holy God, that she could love me, her gay son. Right. And yet today, 2018, you notice that the well, my friends who are in the gay community basically still say it's hard for them to walk into a church. They feel the antagonism or maybe the fear. I guess maybe it is fear that sort of builds a wall. And so I have a, a friend who follows Jesus and is still in a gay relationship. And and I know that even saying that challenges some listeners. But 
uh, she wants to find a church where she feels at home. And it's been hard. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and and I think we should always be making friends with unbelievers. And so it's fantastic that we have gay friends and that we are engaged with them, even in, if they're living in sin. I mean, because my mom, uh, she she still was in relationship with me, even in my sin. Uh, and, and I think it's, it, it, it is, it, it is, I think we need to break our paradigm. Um, a lot of people, they think, oh, I have my neighbor and I want him to know Jesus. So, um, it, you know, their first go-to is to invite their friend to church without ever really developing a strong or developing a strong relationship and without developing, uh, you know, sharing the gospel first, you know, with them over a period of time. I, I, I go to my, my good friend, Rosaria Butterfield. Um, she lived as also an atheist. She was raised Catholic, but very nominal. And when she grew up, she uh, got a PhD in feminist theory in English and was a tenured professor, English professor at Syracuse University. And what won her over was an old pastor of a small little church that just invited her into her into his home, him and his wife, and just spent time with her, got to know her, had dinner with her. And he is a pastor, never invited her to church. And that I know that that's going to just probably just blow people's minds. How could you not invite an unbeliever to church? Well, I think he realized that Rosario had tons of baggage, like I had tons of baggage. And if we kind of throw in church, you know, too early, that might scare them away. And it took a, a long time, of, but constantly meeting with them and not right. skirting around truth, not skirting around the Bible. And they would actually be, uh, I mean, these this couple, they, they did what they always did. And, and at dinner table, they would pray. And at dinner table, they would open up the Bible. At the dinner table, they would sing the Psalms and and uh, that was an ordinary part of their life. So God was definitely in it. The gospel was definitely in it. Truth was definitely in it. But they weren't. Um, it was very natural and organic. And uh, they allowed God to do the work first. But they were there and ready to to be there to speak truth uh, into their lives. So, well, so I often and- say we need to live the gospel before we preach the gospel. Amen to that. You know, I think sometimes, though, it feels to me like, and, and I want to be completely honest with that yeah. notion, because sometimes I feel like when you're friends with someone who's gay in the context of Christianity and the gospel and wanting this deep desire that you're like, oh, I want him to know about Jesus, it's almost like the elephant in the room. Like, you don't know if you should talk about it or you shouldn't talk about it. Yeah. When do you bring it up or oh, do you never bring great. it up? Great question, Lena. I, I think, and, and this is, you know, uh, it's the same thing that my parents wrestled with. So, you know, I was uh, in prison and of all my hundreds of friends that would constantly say, whenever you need something, give me a call. None of them came to visit me in prison. The only people that came to visit me in prison were my parents. And they drove from Chicago to Lexington where the prison was. So that's about six, seven hours. And on the drive, you know, my parents would, would would be going back and forth. Should we bring it up? Should we ask them? And each time they felt God was telling them, wait, just wait. And, and I'm glad they did because I know I was so raw and sensitive at that time that though God was 
definitely working in me on, on other issues. I mean, you know, because sexual sin is not the only sin that we need to deal with. And, and that's not the only aspect where I needed my mind renewed. I needed to, uh, there are many aspects that I needed to have a, a fresh understanding, um, a, a correct understanding of who God was, who Jesus Christ was, and who I was. So they took their time, and um, and, and it wasn't until I think almost after prison that, as they they didn't even bring it up, as as others would ask, uh, they heard and they they, they were so anxious to hear what I said that they, and when they heard what I said, they felt really relieved and, and felt confident that, you know, God was, God was really working in me. So I think that's important when we're with our gay friends. Um, I, I wouldn't focus first on their sexuality, even though that might be the most glaring thing that we see. Uh, but you know, like, like I often say, my biggest sin was not same-sex relationships or my sexuality. My biggest sin was unbelief. Mm-hmm. And once we turn from belief to unbelief, you know, and, and we need to be a part of, of, you know, God using us in communicating that truth to others and our gay friends. So I think with our gay friends, that's, you know, and, and the funny thing is, they most likely will try to turn the conversation. If you start talking about Christian faith, they'll most likely turn it to that because for them, that's the most important thing. My sexuality yeah. is who I am. That's what I said years ago. I don't say that anymore. But um, we need to, I would tell my gay friend that I, if I know them really well, you know, they, they ask me, well, you know, do you think this is sin? Do you think, and they would couch it in this way. They would say, do you think being gay is sin? And, and, and I would tell them, you know what, if, you know, you don't believe in God yet. Let's first talk about God. What What does it matter what God thinks if you don't believe in God? And I think if we really make talking about God and the existence of God and the reality that he revealed himself through his word, um, I think that's much more important to talk about first. And then later we do talk about morality, but in light of all sin, not just the sin of homosexuality. That I think was um, was really beneficial for me. I look at my own walk. How, how did I, um, what was the process in which God spoke truth into my life through his written word? And how, what was the process through which um, God revealed and, and softened my, my heart and, and opened up my eyes? And it was First of all, strictly through God's word and, and, and studying God, God's word, not just on the passages on sexuality, uh, but the whole of Bible. So, I mean, I, you know, obviously, Lena, I had tons of time in prison. <laughs> so I, all, <laughs> I had all this time to read the Bible. And lit, I mean, I just read through the Bible many times. And at first, you know, honestly, I had no clue what the Bible was saying. I, I just, I didn't know. And, and it was hard. I, I think some of the stories were interesting, you know, but I saw them more as kind of like these folk stories. And, um, but, you know, seeing God's faithfulness, you know, with Israel in the Old Testament and seeing how Paul so clearly articulated our own sinfulness and our own need for Christ and the, and the beautiful uh, example of Christ living a holy life and giving his life for us. Uh, and in Revelation, how Jesus comes back. And all of that was, as I read it over and over and over, it, it began to show how all the priorities that I had in life, which was 
um, you know, to be popular, to be loved, to to be known, to have lots of money, to all to fa- all these things were just so irrelevant. And and honestly, it, for me, it also was the fact that I was HIV positive. I was like, I don't know how many days I have left. I don't know how many moments I have, and I want to make those count. And and I know that it's my life on Earth is just going to be a little blip on the radar screen of of eternity. So I I wanted to make my life count. I guess I always wanted to make my, my life count, but I was making it count in the wrong ways. And I now I know I wanted to make it count in eternal ways. Um, so I, I think as we think about our, our friends, um, you know, recognizing first that their need – this this comes back to identity. And that was a big part of, of my new book, actually. my The second chapter of my book, I talk about identity because I think that's a very important place for us to start. When we have our gay friends, we think of them as sinners, as we all should. Sometimes we think of them as more unique sinners than others, which they're not. Uh, but we focus so much upon the fact that they are living in sin, which of course they are. But if we start there, the problem is that I know no, of no other sin issue that is so integrally linked with ontology, that is so closely associated with personhood, with who we are. When I lived as a gay man, mm-hmm. I felt, you know, this is who I was. And that's, I said that. I would tell, um, you know, you know, with your gay friend, you know, and, and your, the listeners, I'm sure your listeners have gay friends or loved ones. And when we talk to them and we ask them, you know, what does it mean to be gay? Or what, what when you say I'm gay, what, what tell me what that means. They will not tell you this is what I do. It's well, always who I am. Well, in, 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 in carrying on that a little, how do you convince? So you, I've heard this said before, and I, I think it's a common thing that people in the LGBTQ community will say, like, how can you say you love me when you reject who I am? Mm-hmm. They'll say that sentence, you know, like, because it's true. You're saying like, well, I love you, but there's always like a but. Christians yeah. approach people like, I love you, but you're doing something really wrong, yeah. you know? And, 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 and just a side note uh, for parents that are listening, if you ever have a child that comes out to you, I know you, you, I know you will always say first, I love you no matter what. That's what my parents said to me. I love you forever. You know, I don't know if you know that little uh, picture book, I love you forever. Um, so my mom always said, I love you forever. I love you no matter what. The thing that parents often follow that up with is, but, and I tell parents, leave the but out, yeah, save it for another day. Because when we say, but especially in that really important time when, you know, that might be the first time your child comes out to you or shares with you or opens up and, and when we say, I love you, but we've just erased all that we said previously. So just say, I love you no matter what, tell me more, tell me more yeah. about hard, huh? Because yeah. I think fear stands in the way. I really do. And so how do you encourage a parent to, who's while well, having that conversation, like just to reject the fear that comes because you, you want, you feel like you've lost control. I would think I'm not a parent, but I would think like, you know, you want your kids to, to walk a certain way. I mean, it's any category. It doesn't have to be sexual sin. It can be even like, you know, you want it to be a doctor, you want to be a mechanic. And so you're trying to control how they live. And yet there is such a, how do you fight that fear? Well, I, I, I think one of the things that parents need to realize, and I often tell parents that that have a son that just just told them that they're gay, that 
first of all, it's not your fault. I think that's huge because a lot of parents put all this guilt and shame on themselves and they think that, oh, what did I do? You know, if I only would have spent more time with my son, if I just would have went to all their soccer games or, you know, if I, whatever, you know, could have, should have, would have. And, and that stems from this misunderstanding that homosexuality is primarily a de- developmental disorder. I think that has been kind of a, a, a falsity that we've fell into for decades as Christians, that we think the root causes of homosexuality are an absentee father, a dominant mother, or abuse in one's childhood. And when we say that, we've diagnosed this incorrectly. Lena, you're a doctor. So people come to you, they want you to diagnose them correctly first, because if you don't diagnose them correctly, you won't be able to treat them correctly. And sometimes you may be even making them worse. I think for any human condition, not only physical or medical or health related, uh, but even spiritual, we have to diagnose it correctly because when we don't, we could be treating them or responding incorrectly. And I think we've done that over the years with this one particular sin issue. We haven't treated primarily as a sin issue. We've treated it as something, well, there, there's something developmentally wrong with this person. And so we need to if it is developmentally wrong, then you know what the answer is. It's not a, a Christocentric answer; it's an anthropocentric answer. Right. So, um, and because so, I mean, there's many aspects why why I can find in Scripture why this is not correct. Because for any sinful behavior, the only root causes are sin nature. Certainly, there are other things that that can amplify it and make it worse. Although I would I would make call the developmental issues more catalysts and not causative factors. But more, you know, more things that can influence it, but not the root cause. The root causes is our sin nature. And we recognize that we realize that the only answer is our sin. So I say that because one of the kind of the, the side uh, problems of that is that parents then think that they then cause their kids to be gay or have same-sex attractions. And there's nothing further from the truth. Perfect parenting does not guarantee perfect children. Look at Adam and Eve in the garden. Did they not have a perfect father? They did. Were they not raised in a perfect environment, the Garden of Eden? They certainly were, but they still rebelled because of free will. And, you know, we, we chose, actually, Scripture even says we chose to sin in Adam. We all sinned in Adam. Uh, so I, I want to free parents of the guilt and shame that often they feel and, and inadvertently we as a church heap on their shoulders. It's not your fault. You could have been a perfect parent and your children are still sinners. So then moving beyond that, we realize that that the actually the sole purpose of a parent, of a Christian parent, is not necessarily to produce godly children. The sole responsibility of a Christian parent is simply to be a godly parent. We can control that. We can't cause our children to be godly, or we're not even the main cause for for them being ungodly. They need to choose for themselves. However, we can be godly ourselves. We can point people to Christ and hope that they themselves will, will, will heed God's call and that they will heed the prompting of the Holy Spirit and surrender to into the loving embrace of Jesus Christ. And so what do you tell, so gay person, this is how, you know, I know we're talking about the holidays and I wanted to get into a bit, although even in light of what you were just saying, like, do you invite 
a couple who's same-sex married to, you know, a parent who doesn't agree with the lifestyle, do you invite them to their home? I feel like that's also a dated question in some ways. I feel like to me, it's obvious. Yeah, you do because you're, you're loving them, right? I mean, right. you're not, it's like anything else. Like you don't know what your kids are doing, who you're inviting at the holidays. Like, it's like, oh, here's a checkbox, you know, just check all the sin you have. And if I don't like that sin, you can't come up. That's silly. Right. But I want to talk a little, maybe a more about the gay person who comes to Christ in sort of this gospel centric model of saying like, they'll talk, the obvious question I would think I would have is, well, what do you want me to do now? Like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, so is the only other side of salvation, you know, whatever, fill in the blank is, well, I, I gotta like, now I'm going to be not gay anymore. So like, tease that out. Like, you know, we're not doing conversion therapy, understandably. I mean, that's, you know, I get all of this stuff that people on the social media are constantly thinking that if you're a Christian and you don't believe in, you know, that you can be a Christian in a same sex lifestyle have, but really what is the hope of a person who gets saved and wants to follow a biblical model and what do they do the rest of their life relationally? Yeah. Um, and, and, and I'll, I'll I'm, I want to say a few things also about the inviting our okay. partner over because I, I I want to leave. I know for parents it's so hard. There's so much hurt and brokenness to see their gay partner is probably very very hard. But you got you hit the nail on the head. You're right. We need to invite everyone. I mean everyone, especially our children. They should always be welcome in our home, including their friends, their unbelieving friends. Now where we how we be full of grace and full of truth is by this. I would. If I had a child who, if I had a son who was gay and he had a partner, I would definitely invite them over for the holidays. I would just keep them in separate rooms. I would, just as I would if I had a daughter who had a boyfriend and they were living together, I would definitely invite both of them home if they wanted to come for the for Christmas or Thanksgiving. But I would just put them in separate rooms and just respect. I mean, they can have the freedom if they wanted to get a hotel and uh, stay there overnight. Uh, but in my home, that that would be my 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 rule, I guess. Um, so so now so now you say like, what's the hope for a person who has same sex attractions? Um, there's one quick thing that I wanted to say about conversion therapy. I mean, as I stated before, I'm not a proponent of it. However, as we see what's going on in our government now, a lot of states are making it illegal, and I want to be very clear that though I'm not a proponent, I'm definitely not for making it illegal. I I, I think it's very dangerous. When the government begins telling professionals what to do and what not to do, especially when they are clueless to the profession. For example, Lena, what would you say if Illinois state state told you, well, you can do this and you cannot do that? Well, what do our state senators and, you know, whatever politicians know about medicine? Very, very little, I'm sure. Um, so anyway, I, I think it's very dangerous. Well, and to that, just to follow that thread for a minute, because yeah. you're right. I mean, this is seriously. I think that this conversation is so important right now uh, because these topics we read about in the media and social media sometimes, and we don't really understand a lot what the terms mean, but we think we do. And like even when you think about conversion therapy, like I think my understanding now, even from hearing Rosaria recently speak, like the. I mean, you, traditionally, isn't it like more of a medical thing? But like now they think of like you're saved, you change your desires from being maybe same sex to non-same sex. That salvation experience is under this big umbrella politically of 
of potential conversion therapy in some states, right? I mean, like, yeah. the, so explain conversion therapy. Yeah, as so conversion therapy, just traditionally, and most states have, have defined it a bit more narrow, just as converting from gay to straight, converting, you know, changing one's sexual orientation. And that is the general, like when they say conversion therapy, that's what they mean. However, in California with AB 2943, there's a, an expansion of that to also include that, there, you know, that there would be... Uh, encouraging change of behavior and not acting on one's attraction to be also included in con as conversion therapy. So, so that's where the danger is in that. So, so that's where it gets very, very cloudy. I mean, you know, the gospel is about faith in Christ. Definitely. It's not primarily about change of behavior, but it's not absent of the change of behavior. Because if you put your faith in Christ, there's certainly, and there must be change of behavior, not that it become, comes first before faith, but after faith, what follows will definitely be life transformation. And that is what's really scary about the loss coming, up, coming about. So I think that is very dangerous. But I also think just from a legal perspective and from a freedom perspective, um, the other laws limiting, uh, you know, banning counseling is is very very scary. Yeah, yeah. So so you asked me about a gay, per, you know, person who's gay or a person, you know, as I would say, um, who has same sex attractions. The you know now what what where's the hope for him? Is it? And I have many people who 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 are Christian and they say that. That for these individuals, uh, what God is calling them to is a vocation of celibacy. And where I struggle with this is um, I don't find in Scripture a vocation of celibacy. Many times people point to 1 Corinthians 7, and mm -hmm. particularly more in the middle of the passage where Paul talks about this call. If we look very carefully, we'll find that call, uh, Paul is not talking about a call to singleness or celibacy. But he's he's actually talking about a call of salvation. So whatever condition you find yourself in, when you're called, meaning called to you know call of salvation, that is what you we should remain. Uh, so this is it's so at least we can't go to First Corinthians seven seven, which is usually what people go to to advocate for a this vocation of celibacy. And, and actually, if we break it down even further, the word celibacy is nowhere found in the Bible. Actually, it's mm -hmm. not even found in the Latin Bible, which is the primarily the, the Roman Catholic uh, translation that they use. Celibacy and the concept is truly from church tradition. And as we know, we can't trust all church tradition, especially ones that come from a different theological framework that um, that is does not focus upon sola scriptura, but focuses much more upon church tradition and and. Uh, words coming from the Pope, etc. So I, I think this vocation of celibacy isn't correct what I see. But what I see that God is calling not only people who have same-sex attractions, but everyone regarding their sex and sexuality is this. I call it holy sexuality. And that's what I talked about in my new book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. I define holy sexuality as chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Because I, you know, I read from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's clear that God has only blessed two two ways of living. If we are single, which we all start out as, then that means that we are going to be faithful to God by being sexually abstinent. If we are not single anymore and we are married, 
that means that we will be faithful to God by being sexually, spiritually, emotionally faithful to our spouse of the opposite sex. Chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. So those who have same-sex attraction, I know a lot of people think, well then, okay, those, those are those two paths. But people who have same-sex attractions only have one, not necessarily so, because I believe in the power of God. And I know of friends who had no interest, they they had no interest in in the opposite sex at all after coming to Christ. And God just miraculously did, and didn't turn them straight, but they developed a really close friendship with some of the opposite sex. And over time, God, of just being best friends, um, this person developed uh, stronger desires, romantic and even physical desires for this one individual of the opposite sex. Not all women of the opposite sex, but just this one woman, and they got married. And so, you know, God can do the impossible. He, you know, He brought death to life. And and uh, I'm I'm single, and I'm certainly open to marriage, uh, but I I'm not I'm not expecting that as my avenue to healing and i'm not expecting that as uh i will finally then be whole then because i know that i'm now whole in christ actually i tell my students at at moody you know we jokingly call it moody bridal institute i tell my students that you need to be whole before you become one and what that means is you know in genesis 2 it says the two shall become one flesh not the two halves but the two holes two shall become one flesh and too often, people who are not whole try to become one, and honestly, that never becomes one. It really just becomes a codependent mess. So the whole well, and that said, said I agree. I mean, like that statement that you made a few seconds ago about you know I'm single, I'm open to marriage, but I'm not waiting for that to complete me. I mean, that whole that's what I feel as a heterosexual woman. In a sense, like it's we're just we're in a in the same way, and I think we have a lot more in common. In general, like I think the gay community and singles and Christians and all of these, like I think we make it so much them versus us or this and that, but really we're humans who are either changed by God to want him, right? Or we are still hanging on to maybe to some level of what we want over what he might have for us. Yes, exactly. And this is why I think it's, it isn't helpful to identify as a gay celibate Christian, because that really just makes us more us versus them. And right. I think that we we look at the climate of our churches today. We don't need any more us versus them. We don't need to be further segregated into, you know, not only are we segregated by our class, but our race, but now we're segregated by our, our, our sexuality. You know, over and over through the New Testament, we need, it talks about being united, not only first being united in Christ, but being united as the body of Christ. And so I think it's key just uh, the way I view it is, and this is important, do we view sexuality as something that causes us to be more different or do we understand sexuality in light of the fact that actually we're not that much different and that we are united in Christ because we're all broken and in need of Christ? That I think is the most important thing when it comes to sexuality. That's awesome. Man, look, this we're coming to the end here. This is I want to have you back to finish this conversation. I just think this is so riveting. And I want to give away three of your books. And in a second, you can tell us how people can connect with you. But here's a little tip too, if you're listening. Don't like if you get the book, don't give it to your gay friend. You know, like mm, we have yeah. such a you know, we're so focused on wanting to change people. Like, I'm gonna get the book and give it to someone. That would not be the conclusion of this episode. I think we all um have the same passion of 
just sharing the love of Jesus and the hope of Christ at the holidays. And it is an easy time to talk about Jesus because it is the time of year that people think about him, right? I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, that would be the case. So Chris, I'm going to give away three of your books. Uh, let's say you guys email me, lena at livingwithpower.org, email our number one, three, and five. We'll keep it easy. And tell us a little bit about how they can connect with you, the listeners, if they would like to. Yeah, great. My website is my full name. So it's ChristopherYuan.com. My full name, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-Y-U-A-N.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Christopher Yuan and also on Facebook, which is Facebook.com slash Christopher Yuan. And um, on my website, you can find where I'm speaking. And I'd love to meet any of your listeners if I'm near you. Uh, and speaking in your area. Boy, I uh, tell you, I'm going to be looking at your event schedule and and show up because I just think there's so much to learn. And I think really a posture of humility on all these conversations is necessary. So I know some of these topics are hard, but Chris, there's no better person to help us, you know, make our way through some of these topics than you. And sincerely, I would love to have you back down the road and we will be praying for you as you um, just continue your ministry and all that God has planned for you. It's awesome to watch. Thanks so much, Lena, for having me on. Hey guys, again, thank you for tuning in. Uh, this conversation has uh, just been great for me. I've enjoyed it. If you guys uh, have enjoyed the podcast and would like to let me know, email me, lena at livingwithpower.org for plenty of free resources, livingwithpower.org. Enjoy the holiday season. Love on the people in your life. And above all, keep your hope in Jesus. He's the one who never changes. Talk to you guys soon.